Welcome to episode 272 of Coffee Pods and Wads. Whoop are sticking around as sponsors for another year and I couldn't be more grateful to them. Truth be told, they don't need to support the show at all, but they choose to, uh, which is great. If you're considering tracking your workouts and your recovery, I urge you to use join.whoop.com forward slash CPW for a discount on the 4.0 and a discounted membership as well to Whoop. They believe in and support the community and they deserve your business because of it. Uh, GoWad are also hanging around for another stint. Again, absolutely no reason for them to support the show other than they can. Um, and they want to help what I'm doing. GoWad have a huge library of protocols and movements to improve your mobility and get you ready for or recovered from your training or your workouts. Fitter, just keep getting better. They've added multimedia input to their app and pre-sale. So after the recent launch of White Label, they're not stopping. They just keep putting more and more add-ons onto their uh, application, which is just phenomenal and supporting coaches all over the world. Uh, Get.fitter.training for more info on that. And Rad are looking for videos for the next campaign. Head to their Instagram to get involved. The open is Rad is the line that they're looking for. From you, rad-global.com to keep up to date with everything that they're doing as well. The news with LSKD, lskd.co is where you can go to have a look at their new sweatshirts because, oh my God, just look at them. Uh, love having LSKD support the show. Proud is an understatement for that. Strength in Depth Origins was on this weekend. Uh, on the invitation side, JSD Compete came out ahead of Knocko and Team ATHX or Marshawn. Uh, for the qualified teams, Motion Storm from CrossFit Surbiton were crowned champions over Jolly Sailor CrossFit and TD CrossFit at Strength in Depth is where you can go for more information on that. In Australia, the Cluster Series team of four was on. Uh, Cluster Fitness came out on top over CrossFit Urban Energy. And CrossFit Carve, they finished off the podium. And former guest Vakey finished on top of the podium with Loose Kids in the Intermediates. That's his first time on the podium, so congratulations on that. Uh, at Cluster underscore event series for more there. The fittest experience was also on in Texas. Jacob Marlowe edged out Jack Rosema and Travin Benton for the guys. And Kelly Shirley, uh, knee baker, uh, laying down a marker for the season on the female side. Finishing first ahead of Elizabeth Wishart and Caitlin Sanders at the fittest experience is where you'll find more pictures and footage of that event special mention to colton mertens who was uh, diagnosed recently with an autoimmune disease which attacked his eyesight among other things and he has since bounced back winning the paired event at circus uh, this weekend before heading back to his home for more training which is just ridiculous after a full event crossfit cree is moving uh, as of today they will relocate to blyery business park in atlone with a bigger timetable and a range of classes available, with a relaunch day set for the 25th of February at CrossFit Cree for more information on that and more. Today's episode is with Josh Clemente from Levels. Um, he founded the company, and this guy is crazy interesting. His dad has done some truly remarkable jobs and has a wild story for it. So if, like, for nothing else, it's worth it for that. But Josh himself uh, is following suit with space exploration. Uh, that was his first port of call. And now health uh, off the back of his engineering background and some concerns he had about his own health levels he uses a continuous glucose monitor to help you understand and react to your body's makeup and the app doesn't just show you um your body's responses it actually tells you information about your responses so what you can do how you can change them how you can improve them which i think is really cool they've got loads of other big plans as well you can go to levels.link forward slash cpw to sign up for early access and find out more i'm not being paid for that or anything but i just think it's really cool and you guys might like to try it out enjoy listen share and tag
Savan, you know Savan, he does the the Savan podcast. He got what he yeah, called after him. Savan Matosian. Yeah. Um he he started doing lives. He was like the first in the space, I guess, to do start doing like lives all the time. Hmm. And um I was like, that's madness. Like that's like so much can go wrong. It's so stupid. Um and then he was coming on the show and I've been trying to get him on. He was on a good while ago and I was trying to get him on again. And um eventually he agreed to come on and then he was like, Okay, yeah, I'll do it. And then I think he jokingly said something about he was talking about going on on his show and I was watching it and I commented and I said, I'll go live. Like if you want. And he said, okay. And I immediately regretted typing it. I was like, why did I say that? Um, but it's brilliant. Like it's so, it's so much easier. Mm. <laughs> like it's, and, and I like lo- loads of perks that I didn't think of. Like, so if I, if I recorded this in the traditional way that I have been doing it, I'd have to like finish the call with you, download it, probably take like five minutes um edit it like cut out the beginning bit cut out the end but i never really touched the middle <clears throat> unless someone asked me to i guess um and then render the video which takes like 47 minutes or something then mm-hmm. upload it to youtube which takes another like 47 minutes and like you it, you can't even like you have to just wait like there's not you know you can't yeah. especially if you're if you're rendering the video it's so harsh on your well my laptop is shit so it's so harsh <laughs> on my laptop that it's like, I can't use Word. I can't, like, I can't do anything because it just slows it down so much. So you're just there and you have to have it plugged in or it'll die because it drains the batch so much. Um, and then as well, you get this like um, community engagement. Like you get people actually watching and commenting and saying like, hmm. you know, asking questions or whatever. But like, oh, totally. I've, I've never, I've never been more glad I made a stupid comment to someone <laughs> than that one. Um, how those things happen, huh? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And he, I think he's going to start doing what he's talking about, starting doing like live YouTube lives, but in person with someone else also there. And then they both have a laptop and they're both looking at the comments and they're both looking like, I, like it's, it's, he's constantly stepping it up. It's really impressive. That is, that's advanced. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've done regular lives. Uh, do, you, do, 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 do you do YouTube lives or Instagram lives? Mostly Instagram lives. Yeah. Because Instagram, Instagram lives kind of disappear, don't they? But you can share it as a reel, I guess, maybe. I think that's kind of our go-to on the levels uh, for you, yeah. is that we'll do the, do the live and then share it back as a reel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, so levels, there's a lot to unpack <laughs> with, <laughs> with just you in general. So um where did you grow up? Where are you now? Where are you, where are you based now? Today I'm in Austin, Texas. So and is um, that home? Is that like what you call home? I think, I think I feel like it's home now. I've only been here for a year before this. Okay. I was in Philadelphia before that I was in Los Angeles, California for about nine oh, okay. years. And before oh, that okay. I, I grew up in the woods of Virginia, kind of uh, in the rural area. Okay. So that's Virginia's on the East coast of, yeah. uh, you know, it's sort of South of Washington, DC. And then I moved cross country to work at SpaceX over in Los Angeles and was out there for a bunch of years. And then, uh, Philadelphia with my fiance, she went to nursing school out there. I started levels in Philly and then moved to Austin to uh, start doing some of our research and development down here. Yeah. I'm basing, I'm basing all my geography of America around like when you were like Virginia, I was like, right. Ben Smith. I was thinking like CrossFit people. (laughs) When you got to Philadelphia, I was lost when you said Philadelphia. I was like, (laughs) I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Um, so, okay. Wow. That's an awful lot of moving around. Yeah. Um, and so you're an engineer by like 
certificate, I guess, by diploma. That's your your that's title, right. I guess. Yeah. Um, and by are personality. You, <laughs> are you? Um, are you? Were you like a prodigy? Were you like one of those kids that like skipped grades and like jumped ahead and stuff? Okay, so I was not a prodigy, but I was a grade ahead my whole life. So I, I finished college, or I started college, university at, uh, I think I was like almost 17, and then finished my degree at 21, like right after I turned 21, a couple of days later. And So you were 16 when you started university? Yeah, it was like the end of my 16th year. So basically like essentially right when I turned 17. So about a year ahead of most most people. And, and what then, was, uh, was everyone else in your class? the right the right age the normal age yeah it's really interesting because there, there are people who are like kind of the way it, the spread works out is you could be like an an old uh 18 year old you know about yeah. to turn 19 when you start or like a very young 18 year old i was a 17 year old so i ended up being in some cases friends with the people who are like a full year yeah. and a half or two years older than me all the way through university and so i was the last person to turn 21 and drinking age is 21 here so i was like you know dealing with that whole thing <laughs> Um, and did you have a fake ID? I had, I had means. I, I never had like a legit fake, but I, I, <laughs> I mostly just had relationships with the people that man the doors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You went the clever, the clever, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the, char- the charismatic route. Not That's the, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not that this is, this is my brother, but I'm pretending it's me. No paper um, trail that way. Yeah. When I was in, I was in university, I went to boarding school and finished, uh, when I was 17 and went straight, I just conveyor belt like straight into university and I was not mature enough to like, I was like, I was 18, started, started university when I was like 17, uh, turned 18 in December. Mm. And like in hindsight, oh God, I should have taken like two, <laughs> maybe, maybe five years to just get ready. I ended up going back afterwards. Like I went back and I was 24, but yeah, God, going when I was 16, geez, yeah. I would not have even been close to being ready. Um, you know, honestly, I, I a, a lot of my thinking these days is that I should go do it all over again, just because I honestly don't think I was ready either. Even though I kind of applied myself and got the work done, I still, I just, don't think my brain was developed enough to, to like really absorb the concepts the way I would now. Yeah. But even just the experience, like the university experience yeah. is kind of, you kind of skip different. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You just yeah. went like, you went like 16 adult, like, <laughs> the, the, the wild oats part. Yeah. Um, did you, did, was there any kind of weirdness from people in your class and were you treated any differently? Were you like babied uh, or were you like uh, shunned? You know, were you like, oh, that's the genius kid. That's a year ahead. Don't talk to him. <laughs> well, you know, the good news is that I wasn't the genius kid. So I, I was nowhere near the top of the class. So how how no did you there. end up a year ahead though then? If you weren't, I, I you were could, obviously bright like. You know, I, I'm I'm good at the things I care about. So yeah. the the hard part is applying myself to, this, to the subjects that I did not care about. And okay. the genius kids were the ones who just breeze through everything. They don't yeah. have to, <laughs> to worry about applying themselves. So that's kind of kind of why, um, you know, if you rewind even further, I was homeschooled by my mom. My mom is a she was a high school teacher before she and my dad got married, and um, I'm from a big family, so I'm one of nine kids. Wow. My mom high schooled all, or homeschooled all of us all the way through our K through twelve, right up till college. And so I think this was actually a decision of convenience. I was able to read earlier than she expected, so she was like, "All right, well, we'll just get you started on everything else." <laughs> And that'll make my life easier because my older sister and I kind of like did the same curriculum all the way through, through school. So that it was really just like, if you can hack it, let's do it. And then I just went straight into school from there. So K three twelve. What age are you? K three twelve. 
Um, so I finished 12th grade. Um, so did you go, did you go to a conventional school and then nope, homeschool? I homeschooled the entire time? Never. Also uh, like from four or whatever up to never stepped foot. Never stepped foot in a classroom until university. God, that must have been mind blowing yeah. to be like, <laughs> you like you and your sister essentially at the end, I assume. And then, oh, there's however many thousand people, especially in those like lecture halls where it's like steep steps and stuff. And one of the, you know, honestly, the, the culture shock of it wasn't really there because I, you know, we were friends with people that were in school and kind of around it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, but the, the shock was the way of learning. You know, so many people, they could only learn if they had a teacher teaching them and someone they could rely on. And actually I was, because my mom was one person and she was teaching eventually, you know, nine people across the entire spectrum of the ages, she had to focus on the youngest kids. And so I, I actually was responsible for kind of reading the textbook and learning myself. And so I ended up just not really going to class in university. I really didn't need to. I would go to the ones that were required for my grade, but I would basically just take the book, go to the library and and learn. And um, so it was really surprising how different I was in my approach to learning things than, than most of the other people there. Yeah. It's great. Like I'm a teacher, like my job is teaching. Um, and like my kids are three and one. So I'm, they're just, they're not there yet anyway, but God, I can't imagine trying to teach them. <laughs> I'm trying to I don't teach, know how. I'm trying to teach like, you know, my son to not knock over shelves and stuff. So I can't imagine teaching him like, here's a, here's a, I can't imagine trusting him to be like, here's a book. Will you just go and do that? Cause I didn't right. like you know, the book, the book and the chair will be got out the window. I'd say, um, that's amazing though. Wow. Your mom sounds incredible. Um, I don't know how she did it. Yeah, like that's because like nine is like a full. That's like half a class basically, and then the spread across from yeah. like what what age is the ninth? Say the first kid. So my oldest sister, two years older than me, she's now in her late thirties, and the youngest is about to turn twenty. So we've got about wow. eighteen eighteen year spread. So about two years. Between that's everybody. crazy. Um, is your whole family uh, academically inclined? Like, have you got? Have you all got that kind of trait? Everyone's got a specific skill, I think you could say, but the <laughs> IQ versus EQ <laughs> differences are definitely there. So some of us are better at the the school subjects; yeah. others are better with with the people side of things. If that that makes yeah, sense, that's a very diplomatic answer. Most people would have no qualms <laughs> about calling their siblings stupid. Most people would just jump at the chance. So yeah, fair play for avoiding that. that was there a, will be consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was a trap that I set there. So fair play for avoiding that. Um, wow. Okay homeschooled that's crazy so that's like it's it's very rare here that like Mm -hmm. someone's homeschooled um i know it's a lot more common in the states well you know what when i was growing up it was totally uncommon like it it was extremely rare and kind of like people would look at you sideways for sure but the interesting thing is during covid it became the mandate like everyone Mm -hmm. was homeschooling by default and all of a sudden there's like this huge interesting wave of people who are like opting into it because they suddenly realize huh there's like all these tools now that we could use, I can, I can like get a tutor for electronically for the, the subjects I struggle with, but also I can like know what my kid is learning and, mm. and we can spend more time like being remote, going on vacation, kind of the things that my parents definitely opted into, you know, we went on a ton of road trips and things like that, mm. um, when everyone else was in school. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see if that's a, if that has staying power here or if it kind of reverts back to the, the earlier times. And what, what did your dad do? A lot of things. So my dad was, um, when he, when he graduated from school, he started as a 
contractor, so building uh, in the construction business. Hmm. So he he built apartment complexes, homes, uh, a lot of stuff out in California, and then he went into the police force in St. Louis, right. and then eventually ended up in the FBI in Washington D.C. <laughs> so that's how we ended up on the East Coast. You've had and, such uh, a fucking <laughs> crazy life. This is, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We, we've kind of so he he's really interesting in terms of his ability to like try anything and and really he does not have any concern about like career you know a lot of people have this this real sense of angst about leaving the security of a career and i totally yeah. understand that but my example growing up is my dad who's like literally tried and been successful at honestly a half dozen different careers after the fbi he went into the hollywood business um he started a production company and is like <laughs> he, he writes shows and uh, produces shows and TV. Are they based on like police? Are they like police things? Yeah. Is it like, yeah, exactly. Okay, wow. Yep. So his goal is to kind of tell the true stories of police, military, firefighters, um, and also it, for people. Is there that, anything, anything he's worked on that we'd know any like shows that he's, do you know, uh, if you know of criminal minds or the unit or, uh, NCIS LA, he, he's well, worked literally on like probably the most famous. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he's yeah, worked, he, he didn't start those shows, but he's worked on all of those. And, and is um, he like a consultant? Is he like, they go to him and say, Hey, is this what would happen? That kind of thing. Exactly. That That's like a big chunk of it. They also do original screenplays. They've done a couple audible books. Um, there was one called Call, Call Me God, which is about if you, I'm not sure if this story made it um, across the Atlantic, but the, the DC sniper case back in the year, it's like 2000 ish, 2004, okay. maybe at the latest. Anyway, there was this, um, this duo who were in the Washington DC area um, really in, kind of indiscriminately killing people with a sniper rifle and my dad and his brother, they were both FBI agents, both worked the case together and they, they tell the whole story on this audible, um, this audio book called call me God, which is really good. And wow. so, so yeah, just producing a lot of stuff, things that I would never kind of growing up. I just did not imagine my dad would end up working on, but it's really cool to see him just kind of continue to do whatever he wants. <laughs> that is crazy. That is crazy. Usually when you ask that kind of question, it's like, Oh, he owned a shop. <laughs> um, what was his like job title in the FBI then? So he worked initially on the narcotic squads. So he was in Colombia, um, kind of embedded <laughs> in Colombia and a bunch of other areas. Yeah, it was pretty wild. He, you know, some undercover work. He's like uh, a Netflix show. Like on his, own. <laughs> his whole life is like a Netflix show. It's really funny. He, he brought back, um, you know, when he came back from Colombia, we, we were relatively young and he was, he would be over there for a couple, couple weeks to months at a time. He, he was sort of, um, really had become fluent in, in the local dialect. He had mm. like a long ponytail and a thick mustache and he was dark tanned and just like looked entirely like a different person. I just remember So was he like undercover? Was, yeah, he was. He was, uh, wow. he was undercover for a while. And then after that, that was pretty dangerous. And my mom was kind of opposed to those sorts of things. So he ended up on the, um, the SWAT team, FBI SWAT in DC. Way safer. Yeah, way Yeah, much safer. safer exactly. <laughs> Um, so that, that like brought my mom's stress levels down quite a bit <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then, and then ultimately, except, except when he went to work, then right, they just exactly. ran back up again. <laughs> Sorry. So when he was, when he was in Colombia, what age were you then when he's undercover? I was about between like ages seven and nine. So you were aware like of, oh yeah. 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 It was, yeah, it was like he, uh, that it was, was interesting. The, I don't think I knew what was going on. That was like what? early nineties then. Like, yeah, exactly. 94 ish. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Mid um, and then, and so I assume when he was away, there was just like zero contact. Like, you could, it's not like you could just be like, oh, I'm just going to ring dad or. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I don't really remember what the contact was like. Yeah. I know um, I know my mom would be able to do phone calls with him and I'm sure we, we were able to talk to him as well. But it certainly was like under certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah. 
and you, then, could, you couldn't just ring him at any no. given time and have his no, phone exactly. going off or whatever yeah well yeah, and then and then big, sort of like, like flip phones right right yeah i guess we didn't even have the cell phones back then yeah. so, um so after after that he ended up in the um counterterrorism and weapons of mass destruction like or the early days of of that which were like basically there were a bunch of bombings in africa um in the late 90s and so he shifted over into that type of work which is mostly like forensics and tracking you know individuals across the globe and then 9-11 happened and he was sort of in the kind of like the center point of the the fbi's focus on that response which ended up with him in the middle east for several years in the early 2000s kind of back and forth as well so he had a a really interesting career there sort of all yeah, of the jesus all fascinating the crazy things. yeah um but even like i imagine maybe i'm wrong but i assume being in the fbi and changing like changing role within the FBI to some degree, people are like, you're moving, you know, like that it's kind of not, I guess the the first one undercover to not undercover, that's probably common enough for most people who aren't yeah. keen on hurtling towards some kind of breakdown. They move to like a more right. stable, but like he's, he's done a lot of different, he's worn a lot of different hats in the FBI. Um, that is insane. That's the God of almighty. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that it was really cool. It, it was, um, I sometimes forget all the things that he's done. And then since then, like I said, you know, he's reinvented him, himself career-wise once or twice since then. And, you know, he's got this really interesting motto, which is a Mark Twain quote, but it's something like all you need in life to succeed is ignorance and confidence, <laughs> which uh, he's really lived. You know, he like goes into areas in industries that he doesn't know much about, but he's pretty confident that he'll be able to figure it out. And yeah. that's kind of what he does. And I think that's one of the nice things is if you know too much, you're no longer ignorant, which is nice, but also you're probably going to convince yourself not to try something. Yeah. Wow. That's remarkable. That is a remarkable father figure to, <laughs> to be following after. Um, so you, you finished university and you were, um, you're an engineer then at the end. Yeah. So I went um, to school for mechanical engineering, which okay. kind of came like, from, yeah, it, it's basically like the, actual engines see. and stuff kind of hydraulics all that kind of stuff yeah i would think i would think of it as machines basically okay, yeah. um you know designing designing and building machines is really what the mechanical engineer should be good at and i kind of went at, after that because in high school my obsessions were cars dirt bikes four-wheelers go-karts like just fast loud machines that i could tinker with in the garage yeah. and uh you know mechanical engineering i found out was the way that you get to build those sorts of things <laughs> and um I had a sense that I wanted to fly airplanes or maybe work on them as well. So that was really the rationale. Yeah. Um, cause I remember, remember connects, remember the, they used to have that like, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, I remember seeing that and they used to have like on the ads, the, like it'd be like a working crane and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, Oh man, I want it. Now I was shit when it actually came <laughs> to doing the stuff. I'd give up at five minutes, but my, my brother stuck at it. He's a chemical engineer now. Oh, cool. Um, he stuck at it. So at least one of us, I guess, got something out of connects, but, um, so how long after you finished, did you start working at SpaceX then? Was that your first job? No. First job. Um, well technically no. So I, I graduated and I really wanted to work at Tesla motors, which in the early days was, um, it was actually, they had this design studio in Michigan, which is kind of North central U S hmm. and, um, so I had an internship lined up. And unfortunately, when I 
right before I finished school, they got a, a big, anyway, like Tesla got a bunch of cash infusement and they, uh, shifted their office location to California. And during that process, it was like right when I would be interning there. My goal was to obviously convert convert to a full-time engineer. Um, Anyway, they told me that they wouldn't have a a place for me to work and I would have to wait a year, um, which is a huge bummer. So I decided to not take some of the other jobs that I could have taken, which were kind of local Virginia um, engineering gigs. They were like designing some refrigeration systems for a hospital project, stuff like that. And I was like, no, I need to work on (laughs) machines. And so I actually went to, I'm not sure if you know the com- company CarMax. It's like a, okay. you know, big used car sales company. Okay. <laughs> and so I went and I sold used cars for that summer. And that was my, my way to like kind of pay the bills while I waited out the Tesla move or found another option. And what, it, what ended up happening was um, Tesla, the recruiter recommended that I apply to SpaceX, which I knew about SpaceX, but I, having worked, you know, having gone to school with a lot of space camp types, you know, kids who have been just like obsessed with space, truly obsessed. And they've been sort of curating their profile since they were kids to be, you know, capable of working in the aerospace industry. I just made the default assumption that I did not have what it took to work on a space company, but I ended up sending in my resume and I worked every networking opportunity I had to, to try and make something happen. And, you know, I ended up getting a call and they flew, well, yeah, they flew me out to, (laughs) to uh, SpaceX in Hawthorne, California. And I, I interviewed and I, I didn't go home. I, I like basically started the next Monday and then flew home and got my stuff a little bit later. So it was kind of a wild and fast acceleration of things. And SpaceX is, that's the, so that's Elon Musk's company that's aiming or has been aiming to get like commercial space travel basically, isn't it? That's, the, that's right, yeah. Um, okay. Yep, it's, um you know, one of the, the things that, that SpaceX does that no other organization or entity has done is reusable rockets. So while, while I was there, we, we went from a vehicle, which most rockets, they, you know, let's say they're bringing a satellite into orbit. So they have to go super fast around the earth, not just, they don't just go up and drop off the satellite. They actually have to go about 17,000 miles an hour, basically sideways. And so it's, it's multiple times the speed of a bullet. And so what happens is the rocket just, once it drops the satellite off at that speed in orbit, it just drops back into the atmosphere and breaks apart and it sort of burns up. So it's a hundred million or $250 million rocket that is completely useless after a single use. And so what SpaceX did is developed a means of once that rocket drops the satellite off, it's able to slow itself down and actually fire in the back in the direction it came from and then descend into the atmosphere. And it has these, these legs that deploy and it'll then land back on land or on a, a drone ship. And you can, you can see there's like tons of really cool video of this on YouTube. But that was a huge innovation. And it basically, the promise of it is that we can take space travel or like basically satellite launches from, you know, single use, extremely expensive to the aircraft days where now, like, it would be ridiculous if an airplane could only fly you across the Atlantic once and then you had to throw it away. <laughs> <It's> like, <"Yeah." laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, well, that would not, air travel would be prohibitively expensive. So that's, uh, that was the really cool thing about SpaceX. Um. That's that's really cool. Uh, was uh, was your interview with Elon, or was there like is there like four hundred people below him? So uh, when I started, there were there were a bunch of people below him. It was very, pretty flat. There was I, I like ended up reporting to somebody who was like just one layer below him, but I didn't interview in person with him. I talked to him in person, and then he sent me an interview question, which was very nerve wracking. So he's like okay. answer this question, and so I had to like respond in a written document to oh, him. Oh shit. And, 
God, I, that I, must have been the most overthought response you've ever given to anything. It's like I a was, thousand words, delete, start again. hundred percent. I think I yeah. had 50 versions. I pulled my hair out. It was, it was terrible, but whatever yeah. I sent ended up working. Um, and what, what was the interview? Was the interview there? Like, uh, said the interview process, was it unusual? You know, the way, like, I always feel like companies like that go like, oh, we'll do things totally irrationally compared to a normal job interview. <laughs> I think so. I mean, again, it was my my only engineering interview in person at that point. Mm -hmm. I had done a couple that were just like people would send offers. Like if you're a fresh yeah. graduate, you have a reasonable grade, they'll just send you an offer. And those were the, the ones I didn't want to work. But this one was like, it was eight hours long. It was kind of on site all day. But it was kind of cool. It was that, you know, basically this, someone would come into the room and they'd say, hey, let's go for a walk. And then we'd go walk out onto the factory floor and they'd show me some giant tool thing. And they'd be like, what do you think that does? Um, I take a look and like try to explain what I thought it would do. Um, what do you think like would fail first about this, this thing? What's like the process that would break down first. And you got to kind of just like show them that you can think through, you know, in a rational yeah. way, problem solving. And that was kind of it. it. What I loved about it is that it wasn't a bunch of gotchas where they sit you down in front of a whiteboard and say like, you know, write out the function of, you know, relativity or something like that. And you're like, I actually don't know how to do that. And it's also not relevant to what I would be doing here. They instead just kind of focus on, you know, if you came and worked for us, you'd be working on that machine. You got to be able to figure out how to use it type of thing. Yeah. I'm imagining them bring, someone brings you around and you still think it's the interview and he's, he's like pointing and you're like, oh, I'd say it must be for, wow, <laughs> some kind of like space, like something to do with the toilet. And he's like, no, it's the kettle. I, like, I, I want you to make a cup of tea. I want like, we're going to have, <laughs> you're finished. It's over. I just want to make you a coffee. Totally, um, totally. That's incredible. Wow. Um, and how long were you there for? I was at SpaceX for about six years. And wow, it, okay. it was kind of the inflection point days. I mean, SpaceX is now, I think about 10,000 people. I left when it was around 7,000, but I think I was employee number 600 something. So it kind of like, it, it grew in many, it grew in like sort of shrank a few times, yeah. but kind of, you know, there, there's some really interesting things like the first spacecraft that, that SpaceX ever launched. I was there for that. I was there for the first landing of the rocket, like the first reuse. Hmm. Um, and then I got to work on the project that developed the life support systems to bring astronauts to the International Space Station. So that was my final project was kind of like developing the breathing apparatus, the oxygen systems, the suit pressurization, the, uh, the systems that sense the cabin atmosphere and make sure that there's no toxins and the oxygen levels are correct, fire suppression, that sort of stuff. So that was that was a really unbelievable sort of cap. And it was not even possible or it wasn't even like on the horizon when I started there, there was yeah. no no prospect that we would ever fly astronauts. So it's kind of wild how how much things changed. I'm imagining your mom <laughs> having homeschooled you, you being like, "Yeah, I'm sending astronauts to the space station. <laughs> I'm keeping them alive when they do it." Um, I have an email from her at one point where I think <laughs> I was sharing um, the resume, or, or I don't know something about one of the candidates who had applied, and this was like when I was there for several years. And the person was so impressive; they were like, just like so dialed in. And my mom's only response to this was how do you have a job there? <laughs> and I was yeah. like, yeah, that's fair. That's totally yeah. fair. <laughs> who, who was sick the day that you came in and didn't pay attention? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. How have they not gotten rid of you yet? Yeah. Um, so the life support, geez, that's how many people were on your team? Like how many people were you working with? Um, so I had a, a group of, of five or six of us. And then, you know, the whole life support team was about 25 people. And um, one of my greatest this... mentors was, was my boss on that program. It's just a phenomenal experience. It's a lot of pressure. Like, even, even if it was just like the oxygen, like yeah. that's a lot of, but like you've listed off like 10 things there. And I'm sure there's probably other things that you haven't mentioned. And it's like, 
it's a it's a broad thing it's like keep these guys alive <laughs> that's, that's the remit and then it's like right what are all the possible things we could go wrong and how can we fix them yeah um yeah that's that's a lot of pressure um what was so good about your mentor on that you know it's a it was a role that like you said had a ton of pressure and the way that my my mentor and boss kind of approached bringing me into the team was he recognized that I had none of the necessary skills. I had never built an oxygen system before, or I should say I had none of the necessary experience. I had the hmm. skills in his eyes. And so he kind of used the method of just asking a lot of good questions all the time and not like making decisions for me or overstepping me or, you know, um, undermining some of the stuff that I've, I would ask, but he would always ask that question that you're like, Oh, I, I didn't think of that at all. And, and so he just kind of led me through the process of learning how, to think about these sorts of problems and to, and to think about ultimately removing complexity, yeah. I think is the best way to describe it is that a lot of places that you go, especially in the engineering world, <clears throat> the answer to most problems is to add more of whatever it is, add more pieces or parts or requirements, um, tests, and all those things add bloat. And they also add failure and documentation and a, a lot of op opportunities for things to go awry. And so, um, yeah, just what I love about his style and the style that I kind of have tried to adopt since then is, is simple as beautiful. It's like bring, bring back the complexity. It's much harder actually to, to, to create an elegant solution with fewer parts and requirements, but it is in the end, the better one. And um, mm. yeah, it's kind of how I would think about it. Yeah. One of my friends is a mathematician and I remember him telling me that like it really takes a certain kind of person to react to those kind of prompts or like questions or whatever like i remember like he writes a lot of papers and you know like theorems you know like uh he posits ideas kind of but he mm -hmm. writes papers to do it but he'd be showing some of his like you know mentors or advisors or whatever and he was like they'd say something he's like it could be something as innocuous as like um why is that there and then he was like everything unravels where you're like oh god is it all terrible should it not be and yep. like it could be as simple as they're like no no i just put a comma but you know it could be anything but like he was like it really takes a certain kind of person to just accept like okay this is fine uh, he he's or she is you know pointing out a flaw and i can fix it right. then there's other people that are like right i quit i'm gonna go and be a lifeguard it's like, <laughs> like um yeah that's that's yeah. crazy and um you're, you're a CrossFit level two, is that right? Yes. So were you doing CrossFit while at space? Have you been doing it a long time then? So I started, I had a, a buddy in college who was like in the early days, uh, I don't know, like 07. He was obsessed with the CrossFit movement and was on, you know, doing the workout of the day every single day. And, and then, you know, I was like, huh, you know, that's cool, but I want to just do bodybuilding stuff. You know, I just want to get super jacked. So I didn't really pay attention to it until... I got out of school and, you know, I play club sports and such in, in university. So when I got out, I was missing that like competitive drive. I would go to the gym and I'd be just kind of like standing there like, oh, this is, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And um, so CrossFit unlocked that for me. And yeah, it was, it was while I was working at SpaceX, it just became an outlet um, to get a lot of stress out and push myself really hard in a, in a sort of sports-like environment, but also with the benefits of, you know, I think physique building. So uh, and then I did the trainer certs for two reasons. First, I, I really wanted to open a box of my own with my cousin. We never ended up doing so, but Still that was time. the initial impetus. <laughs> yeah. Still time. <laughs> Still time, right? Exactly. Um, and once I did the the L1, then I was like, oh, this is actually really informative. And, it, you know, it's like when your L1 is up for renewal, you're either going to kind of renew the L1 or you or you level up and like try for the L2. And so that's what I did. 
And so it's kind of been just like, I consider it a continuing education type thing where it keeps me fresh and, and sharp. And, um, I, I, uh, do fewer dedicated CrossFit workouts now than I once did. It used to be my like only modality, but I've kind of evolved that over the past few years and, um, still love it, but it's not my main, I, I would say it's not my main to my main go-to at the current moment. What is right now? I I'm really interested in this hybrid athlete movement. Um, okay. I, I took some time away from CrossFit. So when starting levels, I, I started to see a bunch of kind of the overstress that I was experiencing that was really interfering with sleep and mood and a bunch of other things, which we can definitely get into. And CrossFit was definitely one of the elements I was, I was really at one point in my, in my life, like burning the candle from all sides is kind of one way to think about it. <laughs> the, candle was just on, the candle was just on fire. <laughs> it's just on, it was melted and on fire. Um, and so I, I actually shifted into more of a zone two like endurance workout mode. I, I ran a marathon. I like just started running long distances and training and that was okay. I mean, I think that was a different type of challenge, but now what I want to do is kind of a bit of both. So I want to mm. find the best balance of um, more endurance zone two work that will help me with some of the mitochondrial efficiency elements that you, you don't necessarily tap into with, with the high intensity stuff. And also the mental, like, I think there, there's an element of just <sighs> cognitive training that I get. I love CrossFit, but I don't love running. And so I want to have something that like continues to keep me improving in that psychological way as well. And yeah. I think the hybrid, the hybrid thing, I'm, I'm hoping I'm only really only just getting into it is going to be an interesting exploration for me. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. I think like what tends to happen is, um, I mean, some people obviously do CrossFit and they're all into CrossFit forever and that's it. Like there's no, you know, it's like, shut up. There's nothing else. Like, you know, there's no, you know, blinkers on or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I think most people seem to like myself included, you do CrossFit and then you do like basically CrossFit, but like you also add in like, Oh, I'm going to run a 5k or I'm going to, you know, like you add in other stuff. And I think that's, it's part of the CrossFit model is like, you know, try new sports and do different, you know, like do like basically don't just do CrossFit, like do, you know, test yourself and try new things and, um, stretch yourself a bit. And yeah, it's like, it's interesting. Um, so is the, is the affiliate, is the affiliate thing like out of your head then? Are you like, nah, I've kind of, I've, is that like, that was when I was like boisterous and was like, you know, I'm <laughs> going to change the world. And now it's like, I'm going to do it a different way. I, I wouldn't say it's out of my head. I, I definitely, I've continued. I will go back to re-up my, my L2 for sure. I don't think I have what it takes to, to go a level higher yet, but um, it's still there. I, I still, I really love what CrossFit has done to the world. Yeah. It's, um, man, it's, it's hard to, overstate how powerful that that sort of movement was and is so no I, I don't think so i think it's more so that i it will probably be sort of an affiliate plus type situation where yeah there are some i really respect and want to better understand the like the ultra crowd you know the people who are doing really crazy long endurance um workouts and i again i don't think those you take that to its limit and you start to break down the body in other ways so yeah there's some balance here that I want to try and find, but ultimately what I, what I really love about what CrossFit has been doing is, um, the recent push, you know, from CrossFit HQ around making it more accessible, accessible for people. So it's not just about like the tip of the spear CrossFit games athlete, but also just kind of getting people to realize that you don't have to be that to get started. And that's something that I, I feel like was a little bit missing early on and 
only, I feel like only CrossFit with its organic sort of grassroots distribution is going to be able to crack that code and get people feeling like confident enough to try something that looks as intimidating as CrossFit does. Yeah. Cause even like the, the recent like videos they put out and stuff, uh, Tyson and Mariah are making these, um, you know, Nicole Carroll is voicing over them and it's like older people at the gym and just general stories yeah. and stuff. Like it's, yeah, it's going back to that. Um, just those kind of affiliate stories that make you think like, oh, I could actually get my dad to do this or I could get like, you know, whoever to do it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think what, what it sounds like what you're describing is that you do like CrossFit whatever at such and such a gym and there'd be like, different route you could do a crossfit class or you could go out the back and do like whatever peloton or whatever because like i know a lot of gyms now are they're also high rocks affiliates so they're doing like crossfit but then they're also a high rocks affiliate so they're doing classes on high rocks which is more that kind of endurance thing i guess but with yeah. some of that crossfit movements in it like wall balls and stuff but there's a jesus there's a shit ton of running and i was i was always, i was in miami and someone was like oh you should do a uh, high rocks um the next high rocks that's on i was like yeah like in my head i was like how hard could it be and then like last <laughs> week i went onto the website and i was like 1k run 1k run one that's a lot of 1k <laughs> runs i was like that's like nine kilometers like i'm not running nine kilometers and doing other shit as well like so right yeah i don't know i might just kind of quietly sneak back out of that commitment <laughs> um but yeah, yeah no, I think that's, that's, kinda, that's becoming that, common i think i think so too that that's really where my head is right now maybe i'm maybe i'm on a a fad of some kind, not realizing it, but I think just yeah. having the option for people to, um, you know, a, a space that the, all the, the concepts of, of CrossFit, which you're right, like it embraces the broad time and, and, um, you know, movement modalities. And there is no, it's, it's not like there, it's not like CrossFit is inherently in opposition to some sort of endurance movement. It's, it isn't. So mm. I think it's just kind of weaving those pieces in. Cause I, I, I think they tend to sort of gravitate towards barbells and um and like amraps and that sort of thing so yeah i think the when the more the elite athletes do eventually it trickles down so like you see people mm -hmm. like tim paulson and stuff are they're always doing zone two like right. first thing in the morning they'll do and then i feel like gradually that trickles down and eventually you have like the say like the kind of really good athletes in the gym start doing it because the elite athletes are doing it and then the regular athletes in the gym start doing it because the really good guy or girl in the gym starts to and it kind of just trickles down eventually but i think it, yeah it just it takes time i think exactly. um so levels then did you did you have the idea for levels and leave spacex to do it or were the two things happening concurrently or did you leave spacex and go oh god what am i going to do now and then have the idea <laughs> so the the early the idea for levels did not hit me while I was at SpaceX, but the experiences that got me into this rabbit hole that ultimately led to the idea started at SpaceX. And that was that, it was kind of what I was describing. I was, um, I hit this point in my life. I was in my twenties where I was physically very fit, like arguably the fittest I've been on paper, like low body fat percentage, strong, could jump high, lift heavy, et cetera. And I kind of just so substitute that for health. It was like, mm. I'm healthy, but I felt, I just realized one day I feel very unhealthy mentally, my energy levels, there's something strange going on here. And I actually started to think I had some sort of terminal illness developing because it was, it wasn't just in my head anymore. It was at the point where I would have these cold sweat shakiness episodes where like my energy was so low and I'm at, I'm at the office, like I'm walking out of a meeting where I would need to like sit down and 
you know, again, I'm, there is no, there's no explanation that I could come up with looking at myself in the mirror for why this would be happening other than something internal is wrong. Mm. And at the same time, I had a lot of things changing about my mood and personality that happened very slowly, but I attribute now in retrospect to, well, we can get to that, but you know, I, I just know that the way I was showing up in the world was not what I wanted to be. I felt irritable frequently. My mood was really just shitty. And, um, I, I was kind of withdrawing from the people I care most about and that sort of thing. And so this sort of juxtaposition of like, I think I'm really healthy, but I certainly don't feel that way led me to two things. I went to talk to my doctor and I told him this, it's like, I think I'm sick. I think something's developing. I need you to help me figure out like what's going wrong. And I gave him the whole list of symptoms, did a bunch of blood work and it came back and he was like, yeah, you're super healthy. Like, um, your vitamin D levels are a little off. Like take some vitamin D, but otherwise he was like, stop stressing about this. You you know, you're in, you're in great shape. And then the other thing was on the SpaceX program I was working on. I, this is going to get a little bit complex, but I'll try and, (laughs) I'll, I'll try and not go down a rabbit hole here, but um, just, this... if, you just, if you just talk to me like I'm a five-year-old, you say, <laughs> sorry, it's just <laughs> ultimately, I, yeah, I can, I can do this. Ultimately, if you are in an environment where let's say you're in a room and the oxygen levels in the room get really high and the pressure gets much higher. So right now we're at atmospheric pressure. It's like 14 PSI. If it goes up to say 19 PSI and the proportion of the air that you're breathing is high in oxygen right now, it's 21%. Let's say it goes to 40%. This is basically going to be a dangerous situation in ways that aren't intuitive. So most people think, oh, oxygen is like purely healthy. Well, it's a really reactive. It's basically like, you think of it as an accelerant for, for chemical reactions. And so if you're in that environment, you have so much high pressure, high oxygen or high concentration oxygen in your brain that you start to get these runaway um, reactions. And ultimately what it leads to is something called central nervous system toxicity. And this happens for divers. You know, if, if a diver's like regulator fails or something like that, you get high pressure oxygen. Um, this, this, this sort of thing can happen and will typically lead to a seizure and potentially even death. And so I was designing the oxygen system at SpaceX and thinking about this situation where, you know, what happens if there's a big leak of oxygen into the spacecraft? Well, this central nervous system toxicity thing could happen. And I came across some research from, are you familiar with Dom Diagostino? Oh, I've heard the name. Oh my God. I can't believe I know someone that you mentioned. And I, yeah, I've heard the name. <laughs> yes. Um, awesome. So he's a, he's a ketogenic guy. He's like, you know, power lifter in, has been in ketosis and experimenting with it as a neuroscientist and a metabolic researcher for a few decades and sort of lives the lifestyle himself. And so I came across some of his research and basically he was studying this exact situation on rats. And what he found is that if you put rats in this environment, they will have a seizure after, let's say, 20 minutes. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. If you then take that same rat and feed it ketone esters, which are essentially, if everyone's familiar with the keto diet, what your body does is it produces these molecules called ketones. They're basically fat molecules that can cross the blood-brain barrier so they can be used for energy in the brain. And anyway, you can feed these ketones actually to someone in the form of a drink. So you feed the rat that and then put them back into that same environment and they were living five to 12 times longer before they would have a seizure or experience of fatality. And that blew my mind. So essentially what he had showed is that basically by changing the macronutrients that you feed a rat, you can give mm. it superpowers. 
it can live five times longer, 12 times longer, just based on the macronutrients it's eating. So in the context of my life at the moment, I'm feeling really sick. I'm not feeling good energy. I'm feeling low, especially, you know, brain stuff was on my mind. And all of a sudden this triggered in my mind, like, well, what am I eating to give me superpowers? Basically, like, is this was the first moment where I reconsidered whether every calorie is the same, because mm. clearly the macronutrient that you collect that calorie from can have impacts of its own on brain health, as this study showed. So now again, I'm extrapolating from rats, but um, the point, point is it, it was the first time that I had thought that way. And that ultimately led me to start experimenting with my diet, experimenting with testing things about my blood and on the other side, starting levels. And when you were, when you were experimenting, so like levels uses um, that continuous glucose monitoring, the little uh, like needle patch thing in, in the back of your tricep or whatever. Um, were you using that on yourself then? Were you, were you going, or were you doing like finger pricks? Like how are you testing it on yourself? So the first thing I did was the finger pricks. Okay. Um, I bought one of those and I started to, you know, it's basically the only molecule that you can measure <clears throat> to see kind of what energy state you're in or kind of what's going on in the body. So I started pricking pretty obsessively. Like I was doing this like 50, 60 times a day and Jeez. plotting the numbers in a, in a spreadsheet, like a crazy person. And, um, my goal here was just to see, cause I would see crazy changes. It's like one minute it would be here. And then I would check a few hours later and be all the way down here. And I'm like, Hmm. I'm kind of expecting that since I don't have diabetes, it's just going to be a flat line, but there's a bunch going on. So I started to increase the rate that I was testing. And then I read this book by Rob Wolf. Uh, you know, I think he opened the fourth, fourth CrossFit box um, ever. And he wrote this book called Wired to Eat. And he talks about eating for your blood sugar and controlling blood sugar and testing with a finger stick. And then he mentioned at the back of the book that there's this new technology called a continuous glucose monitor that you just wear and it gives you, it like sends it wirelessly to your device. And I was like, oh, I need that. So I, I went to my doctor who I had gotten all that blood work from. Told with, me the, with like plasters all over your fingers. Being like, please, <laughs> I need this thing. I need it. <laughs> um, yeah. So <laughs> essentially that, yes, I told him, I was like, I've been testing with a glucometer. I'm seeing all these like random data points. I can't really make heads or tails of it. But good news is there's a CGM. You can just write me a prescription for it and I'll just use that. And he was like, what? No. Like, why would you need, first of all, you aren't diabetic. And secondly, I only give those tools to somebody who is, uncontrolled in their diabetes, meaning they have been unable to bring it under control with just insulin and finger sticks. Mm. Um, it's a last resort. And so I had a bit of a reaction to that. I was, first of all, I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean you're going to wait until the blood sugar yeah. system fails to start measuring it? Like, you know, in the context of being an engineer, it's like, if I suggested that about and then a mechanism, like, let's just wait until it fails and then yeah. we'll measure it and we'll figure out how, why it fails. See, see how bad the oxygen fails when it fails and they're in space. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you'd be not only fired, but you'd be disbarred from ever doing engineering work again. So the concept made no sense to me. And I pushed back. I was like, no, you, you need to, the reason we log two and a half terabytes of data on every Airbus A350 flight that it takes is because we are making sure that we know as a problem is developing so that we can intervene. We don't wait until the engine falls off the, the fuselage to try to up. Oh, yeah, I guess we should check out the maintenance records now. <laughs> so, uh, so that didn't make sense. And then the second thing was I was very frustrated by his ability to block me from accessing data about my own body. So when I think about, for example, my financial data, this is important. It's mine. I'm developing it. And I share it with experts I trust to help me understand how to you know, plan better for the future. And his retaliative response or reactive response was, no, I'm blocking access to you accessing your own data. And that felt like a property right violation to me. It's like, I want to be able to 
I should be able to share my data with you for sure, but you should not be able to block me from accessing data about my own body. Mm-hmm. So that felt like, you know, two, twofold strange reaction. And um, especially if you have the means to do it, it's not like you were saying, can you pay, can, like, can you, like, I'm not paying for it, but correct. can you get me this device? You know, it's not like you were trying to, my plan was to pay cash for it. And I yeah. was asking for, for access. And um, so anyway, those, those, those things set me up for what happened next, which is that a friend of mine went to Australia and I knew that these devices, the CGMs were over the counter in Australia. They do not require a doctor's prescription. So I asked him to bring me one. Check, check in a bag, bring <laughs> exactly. it empty. <laughs> he obliged, he brought them back. And uh, the next few weeks were, were super eye-opening. So um, I was able to connect the dots between those episodes of what I described as like very low energy, shaky, cold sweat to this reactive hypoglycemia, which is essentially where blood sugar, blood sugar skyrockets from something I eat. And then two hours or an hour and a half later, it's plummeting because my body has released a, a lot of insulin to try to bring it back to a normal range and it overcompensates. And now my blood sugar is crashing and it's the shaky sort of pit in my stomach, irritable. And I had never connected those two things because in my mind, what I was eating was first of all, you know, let's say brown rice or sweet potatoes, like items that I thought were glycemically friendly or, um, you know, the time distance between the, the lunch and when I was feeling this way seemed so big, mm. that it's like, well, that couldn't be affecting me. So this was like, I mean, it, it instantly became the most interesting data I'd ever seen about my health. And when I started to dwell on, I, well, first of all, I started to tune my diet. I tried things like, you know, cutting out all the carbs, cutting out all the fat, cutting out all the protein, and just seeing how the meal would affect me differently. And they would all be dramatically different. And I started to kind of converge over a few weeks on a high protein, moderate fat, kind of lower carb, high fiber diet and my blood sugar would stay rock solid. And I completely eliminated those, those, those sort of reactive hypoglycemic events. And so thinking about this, I was just like one day in the shower, I was like, I kind of yelled to my girlfriend, like, I'm going to, I'm going to start a company about this. Like I'm going to fix the problem that I ran into, which is that someone blocked me from being able to get one of these. I'm actually going to do the opposite. I'm going to make this as accessible as possible. And then I'm just going to build a better software experience to help people know what to do. Cause all this experimenting and, you know, trial and error is really frustrating. Like there's gotta be a way to make the experience better and make this accessible. And then everyone can have this and they can at least know what's going on in their bodies as opposed to kind of waiting and watching and seeing if the bathroom scale breaks or if they get a diagnosis one day. Mm. Um, so that's really how it started. Yeah. Cause like, it's interesting. Um, cause say like I have a, I have whoop, uh, I use a whoop and it's funny how like people ask me a lot, like, oh, is it, is it worth it? Like, is it worth it? And I'm like, well, I mean, if you, if you use it, like, yeah, like if you right. don't use it, it's a pretty expensive bracelet. Like it's like, you know, you're oh paying God. monthly for a piece of cloth around your wrist or whatever. But like, even, even the information that that can give there, that that's given me in the past where there's certain times where like, I might eat something that I've never eaten before. And my recovery is like amazing the next day. And it's like, okay, well, I'm obviously, I'm going to start eating more of that stuff, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Or what usually happens is the inverse where like, I'll eat something and I'll like my, I'll be red the next morning. And it's like, okay, whatever that thing was, I'm not going <laughs> to eat it. Now I will probably eat it again because it's probably pizza or something. But like, you know, you ha- you ha- like if you pay attention to it, the, the information is there. And it's, I think the good thing about like, you know, what you're offering and what Whoop do and like the different offerings that are out there is that a lot of it is just like, like, here is the information, do with it what you will. It's like, we're giving you the power to, 
you can ignore it and have like an expensive bracelet or you can pay attention to it and learn from it and change like oh i don't need to train that hard or i need to train harder or i don't need to like running doesn't agree with me or whatever Mm -hmm. doesn't agree like whatever food doesn't um so what you're saying there about because i've seen these graphs i've seen like screen grabs and stuff so uh what you're talking about is like the the graph of the the amount of sugar in your blood basically like your blood sugar levels um and then what so what you don't want to see then is a peak in a trough and what you do want to see i guess is like a slow arc is that like fair like a kind of a, a rise and fall but never actually falling too low yeah so there, there's a couple of things i can i can explain there so glucose is first of all I don't want to vilify glucose. Glucose is like, it is the main energy source for the modern human. We need it. Um, it's an, it's an important thing. We we don't need, basically the claim is not that we want zero blood sugar. Um, but at the same time, we have evolved over a very long time in an environment where our blood sugar has been very stable. You, you have not had access to the kinds of foods that we have now that are essentially either pure sugar or ultra processed and break down very quickly because they aren't in their original form. And so what ends up being the case is like, if blood sugar goes super high, it starts to similarly to that oxygen thing I was talking about where it starts to accelerate reactions. Well, the same thing happens with glucose. It's a fuel. It's very reactive. It'll stick to proteins and fats in this process called glycation and start to damage them. They, they are on those proteins are now unable to do their job because they're sugar bound to them. Um, reactive oxygen species accelerate. So aging markers, they're literally called advanced glycation end products, which are like basically, um, these, these proteins, you can see them in someone who's aging brown spots. Literally they are browning in a similar way to, if you put sugar on a, on a stovetop, there's oh, yeah. heat and there's sugar, it starts to brown. That's, that's a, a, an effect of glycation. So all this stuff accelerates when sugar is high in the blood. The body wants to prevent that. And so it has a hormone called insulin, which is released when your glucose levels go up above a certain level. And that insulin is sort of like a key that opens the lock of every cell. And so the insulin basically lets the cell open up and pull the glucose out of the blood into the cell where it's turned into energy. The alternative is that if if the cell doesn't need additional energy, it's already meeting the energy demands that we have the insulin will then send a signal to convert that extra sugar into fat, into body fat. And so that's the mechanism to, to keep glucose controlled. Now, if you overcompensate, you like, let's say I drink, you know, a Coke, for example, it has a lot of sugar in it. It's liquid. It breaks down very quickly. There's no fiber. That sugar is going to make its way into my bloodstream really quickly. And so I will see a rapid spike in my body. Again, wanting to protect me from the glycation effects of high sugar levels will release a ton of insulin to try to bring that back down. And that's where you get that overcompensation where the peak and the trough occur very quickly. And a lot of times the way, the things that you feel there are actually something close to hunger and irritability. We call it hanger. You know, there's that hangry thing. Like that's a very real phenomenon. And I was experiencing it. A lot of people have, but it's, it's the moment when your body realizes, oh, we overcompensated. Actually now your blood sugar is going too low, which is even more dangerous than when your blood sugar is high. So for people that have diabetes, if they happen to take too much insulin, right? People with diabetes occasionally have to medicate um, using exogenous insulin. So they have to inject. And if they over inject, it can be very life-threatening. So it can bring glucose levels so low that the brain can no longer function effectively and it can lead to seizure and, and a lot of, you know, very negative consequences. So it's a very, really tricky thing to find that balance point of glucose. So anyway, when the body feels glucose going too low, it starts to deploy this fight or flight response. Um, 
heart heart rate accelerates. You kind of get, you know, I, your eyes dilate. A lot of the things that we, <laughs> that we feel um, that we consider stressful occur then because your body's trying to alert you to this danger and you get really hungry. So anyway, all this to say what we are eating every day, specifically the, the sugar content is affecting other hormones and other systems in our bodies in this cascade. And we kind of think of it as like, oh no, I, I eat whatever I want. As long as I don't feel like indigestion, like yeah. it's probably pretty good. But the reality is that you're creating reactions in the body that affect our quality of life, as well as our quantitative risk of long-term issues that many of us don't want to have to worry about today. I certainly didn't worry about them when I started measuring blood sugar. It was much more about quality of life. I wanted to get rid of those shakiness episodes, but I've now realized the reason that I am continuing to care about blood sugar control is not that I want to get rid of those episodes because I, because I know that they, uh, you know, I've now kind of understand why those things happen and I've eliminated them. Now it's an accountability mechanism to keep me not from experiencing that shakiness, but on the right track for my health long-term. It's now something like similar to the financial analogy I made. I don't want to just retire financially. I want to know that I'm going to be healthy and fit enough mm. to be able to enjoy it. And um, if I can back up one step, all of this blood sugar and insulin and all this sort of talk, it can be simmered down to one concept, which is metabolism. So metabolism is, it's the way that our cells use energy, basically convert the food and sunlight and oxygen that we breathe into energy. And every cell in our bodies needs energy uh, in order to function, obviously. So the brain all the way to the muscle and the bone and everything. So we talk a lot about mental health, physical fitness, these sorts of things. What Levels is focused on is actually improving metabolic fitness, metabolic health. So it's the substrate. It's like the foundation that is necessary for your muscle to be healthy, for you to produce enough energy to work out effectively, for your brain to produce enough energy to work effectively. All that stuff requires metabolic balance. balance. And so the tools that Levels is building are oriented around first providing you with awareness, just a way to see what's happening inside your body um, in terms of the metabolic system. And then secondly, the next wave is showing you what to do about it. So a lot of people come in, they see this data for the first time and they, they don't know what to do about it. And so the next thing we need to do is, is show people, here are some recommendations based on your data, based on people like you, based on others in the community and your goals to help you kind of tune those little micro optimizations that you're making every day to, to live a, live a healthier life. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because that, like that was something I was going to ask you because, so I was sent one before by a like rival company of yours, I guess, like a while ago. Um, and that's what happened to me where I had it. Um, very similar setup, like put the thing in the back of your arm, app, look at it. And I was fascinated by it where I'd like, I'd eat something and I'd watch, you know, like you'd look at it later on and you'd be like, oh yeah, look, that's where I ate the thing. And I remember showing my wife being like, look, that's where I ate. Um, yeah. I'm like, oh, I obviously ate something, you know, I shouldn't have eaten that or whatever. Um, but then like, I remember there's a guy, another guy I know here in Ireland had it and he had the same uh, app and everything and I was like I know I was pissing him off by being like and what do I do you know like I was like I had the information was being given yeah. to me but then there was no like now this is what you do with it so I was I was like talking to him being like what did you do now after you found out that you couldn't eat that thing how, how did you figure out you know like and he was yeah. like just fucking google it <laughs> he was like you know just figure it out yourself so yeah I'm I'm pleased to hear you say that there's a that there's it, like, you know, education put in with it as well as information, I guess, because, 
you know, it's all well and good telling people like, here's this thing. But then it's similar to Whoop again, where they tell like there's articles you can read where it's explaining like the benefits of this or the, you know, the the pitfalls of the other or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I have, so I have the levels like kit, but the app isn't in Ireland. So I can't download the app. Oh, we're so have I, I have, uh, cause I went, I was in America start of January and I tried, I was like, oh, I'll download it when I'm away. Cause then it'd be so easy, mm. but it's the, so my billing address and card and all that stuff has to be in America. And I was like, oh, this is just, I'll just wait. <laughs> like it's going to come yeah, eventually. Yeah. I'll just hold on to my kit and I'll just wait. Um, so I haven't tested it out, but I have, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to hear you say that there's actually instruction that's right. possible to use as well as all the other stuff. That's, that's really good. Yeah. It, so, I mean, the, um, the international beta, you know, we're working on that now and, and developing a, a wait list of folks who want to try levels. And, you know, it's, it's definitely an onerous process because the, the devices themselves, which you've described, it's a little disc and it has this mm. little flexible filament. It's not a needle. A lot of people think there's a needle. Uh, it's just, a, it's kind of like fishing string. If you think about that, um, that is a few millimeters below the skin. And that is interacting with the glucose that's in the, in between the, the cells and producing a, a signal. So you wear that thing on the back of your arm, you can wear it for two weeks and it sends the data to your phone. That, that whole system is a medical device, including the software. And so it's, it's heavily regulated, you know, various ways across the world. Obviously I mentioned like in Australia and in, in the UK and, and elsewhere, they're over the counter and you can just get these devices, but they don't provide the interaction, the food logging, the integration of like your activity and your sleep data and, or the insights around what to do. So when levels is looking to expand, we need to expand in compliance with the regulatory uh, limitations, if that makes sense. So it's a bit slow, but when we do, um, you know, I'm really excited, obviously to, to hear your thoughts, but also a lot of the, the stuff that we've built thus far, like I mentioned is, is really around like showing the sort of, I like to describe them as digital receipts for these little optimizations. So everything we do, like kind of everything we do for decades of our lives is compounding, right? It's these small decisions we make every day that compound into an outcome. And so right now, like in the U S 93% of American adults have at least one marker of metabolic dysfunction. And in the UK, this is like, this is now over 40% who have diabetes or prediabetes. So it's increasing and increasing rate. The UK doesn't really track metabolic dysfunction the the same way the U S does. But the point is, is that this, these numbers are, are very large and they're increasing. So ultimately our goal is to kind of show these little actions that we're taking and how they're affecting us and then kind of help people understand how that can compound over years into something that we, we would want to prevent. Yeah. Do you mind if I run and check on my dog real quick? No, go ahead. I'll go right ahead. back. That's okay. I'll wait. Um, I actually have a link. I might put it up. Of... Oh my God, I'll never find it. At least this is a scheduled abandonment. I was abandoned on yesterday's show a few times and it wasn't scheduled. So at least this is scheduled. Well, more scheduled. Oh, there it is. Let's start link. Sorry about that. That's okay. Is he all right? Or is she? Doing okay. Yeah. Worried about the wind, it sounds like. <laughs> What, uh, what kind of dog is it? She is a flat coat retriever. Okay. Yeah. Is there a lot of brushing involved there then? Yeah, there's a lot of that. 
Um, so that's the link. So there's a there's a wait list for the UK um, that you mentioned. So the that's the link if anyone wants to use it awesome. for watching back or whatever. Um, so yeah, because it's probably tricky, I guess, if you're. It's not like you know Angry Birds where you can just roll it out across globally. It's like there's actual like parameters within different countries that you have to go through and stuff. Um, so you mentioned there the food. Um, so how food can affect it and stuff. And I know you talked earlier on about how when you were just doing CrossFit, that like you you kind of had that included as one of the things of like, oh, maybe this isn't as good for me as I think it is. Um, it, I noticed when I was training similarly on the app that I didn't really understand what I was doing, um, similar spikes and like, you know, you know, like peaks and troughs. And I was asking other questions and like, is it the case that you want, uh, obviously it's kind of, probably impacted by your diet and stuff as well but is it the case that you want it to just basically return to stasis as quickly as possible is that what you want when you're when you're training so exercise is a really interesting um and very different from nutrition question so it i can confidently say that you want to consume food that is going to keep you in a pretty consistent blood sugar range and not massively elevate and also not elevate you outside of sort of a target range for long periods of time. Both of those are, are situations we kind of want to control for exercise on the other hand. So interestingly with, with CrossFit, for example, or any high intensity exercise, there's a very natural and beneficial system in our bodies that makes sure that we can produce enough energy to keep up with the demands of whatever exercise we're doing. So you might see with a continuous glucose monitor, when you're doing an intense wad that your blood sugar actually spikes skyrockets even the way that it would if you ate candy or, or drank a soda. And that is a very different thing. So I, I don't want to describe those as, as similar or even something mm. that you, you might want to avoid because what's happening in the body during the exercise is you're breaking down stored glucose that's in the muscles and liver called glycogen. So we're breaking that down and using it for energy that some of that shows up in the bloodstream to make sure that it's distributed to all the muscles. And then your liver is also producing new glucose from the stored sources on your body. And, um, so what we see is that actually not only are you burning the fuel reserves you've got, but also for days and in some cases, weeks after intense exercise, your body is actually better at processing glucose without impacting that hormone insulin. So it's, it's called non-insulin, uh, dependent glucose uptake is essentially what happens. Your cells get more sensitive to the glucose molecule into the insulin molecule. So this is a really profound benefit and it's the exact opposite of what happens when you see a similar blood sugar spike from food. When you okay. are impacting your system with glucose from food and your insulin system has to respond, you actually can see this development of what's called insulin resistance where your cells get worse at responding to that sort of key in the lock signal. And um, so it's a little bit tricky and it's sometimes confusing because if you only have access to glucose information, you can't really tell the difference, right? But if you have activity information, you know, oh, this person was doing an intense workout. Their heart rate was elevated. They're, you know, getting a ton of, of reps in versus this person is, you know, sitting on the couch, kind of like eating a, a very uh, rich meal. We can kind of tell the difference and create insights around those differences. And it's not that we want to completely avoid any indulgent food. There's actually some really cool benefits to very simple exercise, even just walking. Um, that can help control a blood sugar spike from a meal. It's one yeah. of the great things is to like eat a meal that you know is going to cause a big blood sugar spike and just sit on the couch, uh, see it happen. 
<laughs> and then the next day eat the same exact meal at the same exact time and just go for a walk, like at, go for a 20 minute walk shortly after finishing it, 30 minute walk. And it's fascinating. Everyone is, is like surprised and amazed at how effective that simple walk is at controlling that blood sugar spike. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's mad. Cause like you hear about those kind of things that are, you know, like uh, kind of like old wives tales or whatever, where it's yeah, totally. like, you know, like, oh, you, you go for a walk to help digestion. And it's like, you know, it's just like a vague statement, yeah. but obviously the science is behind it. Just nobody understood it when they were saying like, well, I always go for a walk because that's what you're supposed, that's what my granny said to do or whatever. Like, right. um, yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. it's, it's crazy. Um, so have you have you noticed do you guys like do you guys have access to say if i if i had the app and i had the thing on are you like um i don't mean this negatively now but are you guys like farming the data that's coming in are you able to like create a picture globally of like oh these people who do marathons we've noticed this trend in their blood sugar when they are these people who do you know cycling we've noticed this trend are you able to do that kind of stuff so um First of all, you know, one of the things that we are really aggressive about is data privacy. So we, we are in full compliance with all the HIPAA and GDPR rules that we need to for every region that we roll out in. And the goal is to like have each person fully own this data, be able to delete it from our systems if they want, yeah. control who gets to see it, all that stuff. So, you know, we fundamentally believe that this is not, you know, the company's information. This is, this is your information, similar to the complaint I had early on with my position. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a great question. And in the US, we have, and we intend to expand this, but we have a 50,000 person IRB approved study. So this is an institutional review board approved human research study. And what that allows us to is for people that consent, we can anonymize and aggregate the data that they have. So we understand some demographic stuff about them. We have their CGM data, activity data, food logs, and we can now aggregate that stuff and start to pull out these themes. And this is exactly where we're going with the insights frameworks that we're building is that we can look at, um, you know, people of a certain background or uh, people of a certain, uh, let's say, uh, height to weight ratio and start to understand how CGM data differs for those types of folks, what sorts of activities and, and decisions lead to better outcomes for them. And that, that can then be cascaded to people who either haven't done all those same experiments with a CGM or even, and what I'm very excited about right now, for people who can't afford a CGM, right? Oh, yeah. um, there's a world where we can share a lot of these learnings which just for, for everyone who's, who's listening, this is super new. Um, continuous glucose sensing has been done for people with diabetes for a long time. And that's really important because obviously they have an acute condition that has to be managed, but it has largely been ignored until very recently and really until companies like Levels for people who don't have that condition. And the thing that's difficult here is that if you look at diabetes, the vast majority in, in the US, it's 95%. In the UK, it's very similar of diabetes cases, um, as well as other conditions like heart disease and stroke are chronic illnesses that are caused by lifestyle choices. So they are not the type one diabetes sort of example, which is an immune condition that is inherited. Um, type two diabetes is onset largely due to independent on, and there are some genetic factors, but due to independent on the sorts of lifestyle decisions that are made over long time periods. So the consideration that we're working towards is that we want people to have the information about how their bodies are functioning well before some sort of really acute uh, metabolic dysfunction like type two diabetes sets in. Um, again, we aren't a diabetes prevention tool. This is a, this is a product that helps you understand what's happening in your body. And um, it's really important, I think, for us to kind of create a world where people have access to that information 
whether or not they, you know, can afford to use it right now is a mm. difficult thing. And we want to create, you know, a lot of accessibility so that we can drive those prices down and make it such that anyone who wants that info can have it. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, because you'd love to see, you know, like I heard, I remember hearing someone on a show on, I think they were on Savannah's show and they were talking, I think it was like Paige Powers or someone and she was talking about being celiac. And she was saying how, you know, someone in the comments was saying how like grain is different in different countries, like they harvest it mm -hmm. differently and produce it differently and stuff so that, you, you know, she had been in Italy and like was eating what if she had it at home would have like ruined her for like three days. And she right. was like, I was kind of okay. Like when I had it. Um, so it'd be interesting even to see, cause I know like say in the States is a lot of like uh, high fructose syrup and all that kind of stuff that we don't use in right. Ireland. Like that's just, it's not there, but we, we do have like refined sugar and stuff, but we don't use like syrups and that kind of stuff in food production. So it'd even be interesting to see, that kind of comparison of like say geographically like or like socioeconomically what's the difference between people who you know if you took like a thousand crossfitters globally does it make a difference what country you're in does it make right. a difference what like your average income is or you know that kind of stuff like it is yeah it's fascinating stuff um what what uh what's the roadmap for rollout then have you got like are you hoping that by summer or by 2024 or by like what have you got in your head for that kind of stuff yeah so this year um we are optimally summer but um it's, it's a little bit difficult to predict exact dates right now we are mm -hmm. planning for our, our uk waitlist rollout um to start expanding the beta there and then um you know i would say for sure this year that that's the intention and there's some really exciting things happening that I think are going to enable, you know, ultimately the devices were developed for diabetes management and we're looking forward to a future where the, the tools themselves evolve to be focused on the use case, right? So we need tools that are specifically for people who are managing diabetes for sure. And then we also need to kind of see innovation in the space to develop specifically the devices, but also, uh, you know, integrate more effectively with the software for people who, who aren't managing diabetes and for example, want to optimize exercise performance or want to lose weight or want to manage, you know, the conditions that are driving hormone fluctuations for women who are approaching, um, let's say menopause or, uh, or men who are dealing with low testosterone. So all of these use cases effectively require you to know what's going on inside your body and to be able to tune the, the choices we're making that could be making life actually more difficult than than it needs to be and that we just don't have insight into. So we're kind of flying blind. And I, I think we, we need to continue to see a lot of innovation in the direction in both ends of the spectrum, right? Whether it, 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 this is a spectrum, there is no condition where all of a sudden you kind of suddenly become diabetic for in, in terms of type, di type two diabetes. Uh, it's a slow and gradual progression. And so we need to, to really like focus on the various stages of life and give people those tools. And, um, and another thing that I'm really stoked for is that in the near future, we will be able to measure a lot more than just glucose. And I kind of mentioned that it's difficult to tell the difference if you're just looking at a glucose plot between a spike from a really hard workout or from a really big meal. And, you know, soon we will be able to measure additional molecules in a very similar way to give people a much higher resolution um, on, on their current health status. Um, so you can imagine other metabolites like lactate, you can measure your lactate threshold, which would be great for athletes and for yeah, wow. weight loss. It's also a good predictor of, of risk of, um, of infection. Um, eventually I think hormone detection is going to be the, the holy grail. So to be able to see your cortisol levels in real time. So when I was, like I said, burning the candle at all ends, it would have been fascinating to see where my cortisol levels were and decide whether, you know, am I going to actually just 
chill tonight and try to catch up on sleep? Or am I going to go to the gym at 10 PM and crank out an intense workout um, yeah. and end up potentially not sleeping all night and being kind of back at it tomorrow? So those sorts of things I think are going to be really powerful for the future and will become the substrate for our daily lifestyle choices, I think. How, what's the time frame for that, do you think? Is that like within the next five years or 10 years? Or Five is a safe bet. Um, yeah, wow, we've already seen, be... yeah, we've already seen some really cool progress towards measuring not just glucose, but lactate, ketones, uh, maybe even alcohol in the blood, which, you know, that could be used for certain use cases, but it's not, not exactly on the same level. Um, but we've already seen devices developed by companies like Abbott that can do this. Uh, it's really just a matter of getting them to market and then continuing to expand on them, right? Making them accessible, bringing the prices down, seeing how people use them in the real world and using that data to more effectively tell us like, okay, now what more do we need to measure to make this a life-changingly you know, beneficial product? So um, five, five years is, is definitely safe. I would say by 10 years, everyone's going to be wearing something like this or, or will at least have, have the ability to. And is there plans to integrate it with like, uh, this is purely selfishly now I'm thinking, um, mm-hmm. you know, the way, like if, uh, like I have an iPhone and you can integrate like certain heart rate monitors with your health app and that kind yep. of stuff. Like, is there plans to integrate say with whoop or so that your recovery and your food could be compared or to yes. integrate it with like, I don't know, my fitness pal or, you know, like other apps that are in the space that are trying to achieve the same goal, I guess. Yeah. So we, we currently do integrate with Apple health and Google fit, which pull in data from, I think even whoop now connects with Apple health and and many other trackers. So I wear a Garmin I've, I've used whoop those integrate with Apple health, which we then can integrate with. And so that allows us to today, we pull in and interpret exercise timing duration, um, how that interacts with the meals that you've eaten, sleep duration and quality. Um, and in the future, those integrations will just get even more tighter, even more tight as, uh, as we better understand the relationships. Cause right now, again, a lot of this stuff, this is a really important tool for awareness, but a lot of this stuff in our study is currently focused on this. We don't yet know, right? We don't know what the optimal, um, combination of lifestyle sleep and, or let's say exercise, sleep and nutrition decisions is for a specific individual. And over time, you know, at the first, the first step really is like, collect the data. Um, a lot of the rationale that we run into for, oh, we, you know, well, I, I don't need to use levels because, um, you know, my doctor said that nobody's ever measured that when they don't have diabetes. So that's the rationale. Mm. And my argument is that you have to start measuring it in order to understand what happens in order to make better choices. So, um, you know, got to yeah. start somewhere. Um, well, listen, thank you for, for coming on. It's been great to get to talk to you. You're a fascinating guy. Like at the, like the body biometrics and measuring stuff and everything is like, it's remarkable what can be done and what I think it's remarkable what can be done. And people don't realize what can be done. You know, like that it's such a untapped mind for so many people, mm-hmm. uh, myself included for a lot of the stuff. Um, and then if nothing else, hearing about like your childhood and your family was like <laughs> just mind blowing at times. Um, yeah, thank but th- thank you for coming on and congratulations on level success and, um, you know, best luck with all your endeavors this year and, and in the future as well. Well, thanks very much, Peter. I, I really appreciate it. It was a great chat. And um, yeah, I, I love the, <laughs> I love the dive into the background. I, I always love sharing that stuff. Yeah. And, I'm going to, I'm going to download what is it? Call me God, as I always said. Call I'll me download God. Yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And, and once you use levels as well, um, I'm really excited to, to get your perspectives on it and, um, and how you'd like to see the product evolve. And yeah. uh, just to, for anyone who's interested in kind of reading about this stuff, we, we touched on some of the concepts, but I really recommend the Levels Health blog, just levelshealth.com slash blog. And it's a great place to get started.
That's cool. Um, cool. Thank you. Go and tend to your dog and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks very much. You too. Thanks a lot, Peter. Great job. Cheers. All the best. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.